Hello everybody. It is the end of my work week, so that means it's time for you to join me on the Homeward Path. This is the show that I record in my vehicle on the way home from work at the end of the work week. And my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job, and listen, magic's tough. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and if you're like me and don't have a lot of either one of those things because other responsibilities come first, then you should probably stay tuned because I'm here to try to show you how I am seeking improvement at Magic under difficult time and financial constraints. But before we get started, I need to remind you that I'm a part of the Constructed Criticism Network of Shows. If you haven't checked out the other content on the network, it is fantastic, and you are doing yourself a disservice by not doing so. Uh, We bid a hopefully temporary farewell to the Arena Mythic cast, but Spencer returns, makes a glorious return to the flagship Constructed Criticism show. Uh, We've got Common Knowledge with Brad and Christian, and we've got... Sam Black, one of the icons, one of the legends of Magic the Gathering, with his insights unlimited. So we've got something for everybody. Out of the group, I'm probably the most casual, and I'm kind of trying to lay into that, embrace that, lean into it a little bit more. But check out the network, and don't forget to check out our sponsors, which I'll read off at the beginning of each segment. How's it going, everybody? I hope your week has been good. Mine has been, honestly, better than I thought it was going to be. But I've got one more work week before my holiday vacation. And you all have got three more episodes before I take a week off at the beginning of the year. So without any further ado, let's dive in. First segment, every episode, Budget Spotlight. Where we are spotlighting, shining a light, if you will, on an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a card with a commander focus in mind that I think are not getting their just desserts, which is funny because I'm baking desserts right now, but that's beside the point. With that in mind, let's remind you that this segment is sponsored by PureMTGO.com. They are one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web they've got something for everybody if there's a format you like to play they can find a way to talk about it they've got somebody who's talked about it so with that in mind don't forget to check them out it's gonna do you do do you a favor you know so let's dive in our uncommon this week is grumgully the generous from throne of eldraine Grumgully is one, a red, and a green for a 3-3. Legendary creature, goblin, shaman, I believe. Let's get that pulled up since I'm actually at home. Yes, goblin, shaman. And Grumgully says each other non-human creature you control enters the battlefield with an additional plus one, plus one counter on it. Now, Grumgully's price tag right now is 25 cents in paper or 3 cents on MTGO traders. For reference... The paper prices come from CoolStuffInc.com, which is where I do most of my business in paper, and the MTGO price comes from MTGO Traders, which is where I do all of my Magic Online business. So, cat out of the bag with Grumgully. I mean, 
you've got two very distinctive applications you want to use this card for. You've got the fair version, where you're playing it as a lord in your mopey, non-human tribal decks. That can be goblins, where it just links arms with other lords that you're already interested in playing, like goblin king, like goblin chieftain, like goblin trash master, like... I mean, y'all know. Y'all know what all the goblin cards are. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But not just in goblins, it can also serve as another card, another cog in the machine, if you will, in shamans, because... As long as they're non-human shamans, they'll get an extra plus one, plus one counter. Uh, you've got the benefit of being able to play it in the Bard class deck, where it can come down for one mana, and in turn make all your other non-humans that you're playing for free with Bard class active for free or for very little mana enter the battlefield with additional plus one, plus one counters and start bashing your opponent's face in. I don't know what you're about. Mopey creature decks are not my thing. But the fact that this supports so many of them in a good color combination to do so kind of gets me interested in building one. But I'd be lying if I said that was the only reason I wanted to talk about this card because there's the unfair application, which is the fact that you combine it with sacrifice effects and persist creatures and you can create infinite loops. And again, we'll have a little bit more on that later, but in the context of things like Modern and Commander, I mean, Murderous Red Cap and Kitchen Finks exist. Fun fact, neither one of those creatures are human. Murderous Red Cap's a goblin, and Kitchen Finks is a big oof. So, price tag, a quarter or three cents. You can do a whole lot worse than a card that's either a tribal lord or an unfair combo piece that allows you to do looping degenerate things. Moving on, our rare for the week is Bring to Light. Bring to Light is from Battle for Zendikar, I believe it is. Let's get it pulled up here. It's from Battle for Zendikar. Price tag is $1 or 11 cents, respectively. $1 in paper, 11 cents for... Magic Online. Battle for Zendikar reads... It reads... Three, a blue and a green, sorcery, converge. Which is admittedly one of my favorite mechanics. I like mechanics like converge or sunburst, where the card can be like fair value in a deck that wants to not have to play a bunch of colors, and it can be even more powerful and give you an incentive to splash the extras. In the case of Bring Delight, you search your library for a creature, instant, or sorcery with mana value less than or equal to the number of colors, man colors of mana spent to cast this spell. Exile that card, then shuffle your library. You may cast the card you exiled without paying its mana cost. So, it's not just for scapeshift anymore, folks. This card used to be primarily used in scapeshift decks. You would play some off-color duels to use fetches for or to use... Uh, things like Sylvan Scrying or what have you, you would be able to get some off-color duels, off-color mountains, and that would allow you to cast Bring to Light with four colors, and you would get Valakuts and... or you would get Scapeshift, cast Scapeshift, 
go get Valakuts and enough mountains to go your opponent. Simple, clean, and elegant solution. But that's not what this thing is about anymore. Because people decided they didn't want to just kill their opponents outright and only use this card in modern. Fun fact, this thing's legal in Pioneer too. It also plays well with a host of other cards, like the No Mana Suspend cost cards. Because it doesn't even matter. If you find a way to cast this thing with no colors of mana, I don't know how you do it, but, you know, magic's a fun game, you'll figure it out. You can still cast those zero mana suspend cards. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that this thing goes and casts Niv-Mizzet Reborn, which can, in fact, dig through the top ten cards of your library and find another one so you can do it again and just keep the value train rolling and bury your opponent in value. All that for the low, low price of $1 or 11 cents. Come on, people. We can do a whole lot worse than that. Now, our mythic for this episode needs, needs a little bit of an introduction. Because, thankfully, it's, it's come down quite a bit in price since its original printing. And that makes me more comfortable talking about it in the context of Budget Spotlight. Because when it was released, it was like a $30 card. And now it's hovering around 10 which is to say, like, I got copies of it. I saw it drop to 10. They were running a sale on cool stuff. I jumped in, took advantage of my loyalty discount, and got them for, like, the in conjunction between the sale and my loyalty discount, I think I got them for seven apiece. Just a little, you know, financial saving money flex. That's what I flex with people on is how cheap I got things. Uh, but in the context of, you know, general market price, market value, I think it hovers somewhere around $10. That card is Demi-Lich. Demi-Lich premiered in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, and I was in love immediately. Let me tell you. It's a value-generating, spell-slinger-based blue creature. How could I not love it? Demi-Lich costs blue, 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 blue. So it's four very specific mana. 4-3, Skeleton Wizard. This spell costs a blue less to cast for each instant and sorcery you've cast this turn. Whenever it attacks, exile up to one target instant or sorcery from your graveyard. Copy it. You may cast the copy. Note that you still have to pay the associated costs of casting the copy. Unlike other cards. The upside is you may cast Demi-Lich from your graveyard by exiling four instant and or sorceries from your graveyard in addition to paying its other costs. Now, that's absurd, right? It's a four-drop, four-three that can come out of the graveyard conditionally and has a relevant combat ability. Where have we seen this before? It's... It's the instant sorcery version of Vengevine. It's obviously not as good because it doesn't have haste. And it requires four spells to come out of the graveyard for quote-unquote free. Upside, you, uh, you get to play a bunch of instants and sorceries in your deck, which can in turn put it into the graveyard easily 
and it's legal in Pioneer where Vengevine is not. So, you know, two feathers in the cap that it's not wearing, as it were. And that gives me an idea of something to do with an altar down the line, but I digress. This thing shines as cantrip power levels rise. Because if you get to if you're playing it in Pioneer, you're playing it with Consider and Opt and in black you've got access to collective brutality. In uh blue, obviously you get access to things like charter course, strategic planning. Uh in red you get access to Cathartic Reunion, Tormenting Voice, uh, Merchant of the Veil. I mean, there's... In green, even, you can mill it with Grapple with the Past and then get back a relevant spell or a land drop. I mean, we've got Grizzly Salvage in the format. We've got... Uh, there's just a lot to choose from as to how to get this thing into the graveyard or how to cast a bunch of spells in order to start buying it back. And that's where things get interesting, because once it's on the table, you add a little bit of mid-range grind. You do. You, you add a little bit of that mid-range grind power to your deck. And not for nothing, it plays pretty well alongside your... All my stuff has flashback cards. In Pioneer, that would be Lear. Uh, from the context of that allows you to not have to have a bunch of spells in your hand in order to cast some stuff to get this out of the graveyard for free. But you start going further back and things get ridiculous. You start looking at modern and you get access to Thought Scour. You get access to... Uh, oh, what is that card's name? Abundant Harvest. You get access to... Uh, drawing a blank here. Um, but there, as you gain access to more effects like this, it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. You go into Legacy and you pick up... You get to play eight Thought Scours in your deck because you get Mental Note. And you get careful study, and you get faithless looting. Like, ew, it's good. Even if it's coming out of the graveyard, eating a bunch of stuff, it's it's a delve creature, but instead of needing you to cast the spells, like you don't have to maintain a massive graveyard all the time, although it obviously helps. But then, unlike a Delve creature, it can just do it again from the graveyard. That's so good. And price tag on it right now, again, 10-ish dollars in paper. Uh, the promo version of it, it's the old frame version on Magic Online's about $228. Uh, the original Adventures in the Forgotten Realms is still hovering around $32. And then the uh, borderless promo is sitting at six oh two, but the 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 old frame at two dollars is a steal. So is the paper one at ten dollars. This card was thirty bucks at print for a reason. It's a mythic. It's a highly desirable set of effects on a card, and 
I am will I am literally willing to gamble with the the capital that I had available that I think it's going to go up. And I would rather get it now and eat the loss on it later if I'm wrong than not be willing to bite it and need it later. So that was that was my surprise for the week when I was researching card prices for this episode. Uh, and last but not least, let's get this thing pulled up on here. Our commander-focused card is Ishai Ojutai Dragon Speaker. Ishai was printed in one of the commander uh, pre-con decks. It was one of the partners in the four colors. I can't remember which deck it came in. But Ishai is two, a blue, and a white. Buys you a 1-1 flying legendary creature, Bird Monk. And whenever an opponent casts a spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on Ishai. And Ishai has partner. So you can partner Ishai with any other partner. Not partner with, like some of the ones from Battle Bond, but just actual partner so that you can play them with any of the rest of them now of note price tag wise in paper it's around four dollars and on magic online it's around two so why do i like ishai well we can get large in a hurry because everybody plays mana rocks in commander it's a four drop so if you play a Mana Rock on turn two and then drop Ishai on turn three and your opponents go around the table once and just ramp mana, Ishai's big. We're already a 4-4. If they do anything remotely related to Is it, it's going to get a whole lot bigger. Because that's, you know, the hallmark of the Is it is taking a whole lot of game actions. But not only is it, it's, it's an interesting one for Commander because it's, there's no clearly defined Ishai deck, right? Like, if you sit down and you reveal Ishai Ojutai Dragon, Ojutai Dragon Speaker as your Commander, nobody knows what your deck does. They have no idea. They don't know if you're scary. They don't know if you're bad. They don't know what your average power level is, and quite frankly, you probably don't either. So there's no real discussion to be had about like the arch enemy factor or, you know, people just deciding that they need to kill you right away because quite frankly, nobody's going to know what your deck does. You're not bound to any particular archetype. So even if there are two of you playing it at the same table, you're probably not playing the same deck. One of you might be stacks oriented, one of you might be tempo oriented, one of you might be playing a bunch of cantrips and counter magic and uh, using it in conjunction with, uh, you know, sort of finesse abilities and trying to kind of keep your opponents at bay and let Ishai sort of slow Voltron everybody. But, like, there's no one right way or wrong way to play this commander. And that's something really enticing out of a $4 
four mana partner commander. So that's all we got for budget spotlight this week. Again, remember, don't forget to check out the sponsor at puremtgo.com. And let's kick into our second segment for the week. What I like to do in this segment is highlight a deck or an archetype that I feel like has some play beyond the amount of press it really it receives. Whether from the context of price tag, it's you know cheap to get into, and I think it's got a little bit of play for that price point, or because I think it offers you a good entry point into multiple formats, along with clear upgrade paths if you start to experience some amount of success with it, and that's where this week's deck falls. This week, we're talking, I'm, a, I'm making Jim Davis proud this week, we're talking about goblins. You have a very, very simple core concept for goblins. Use your various tribal payoffs in conjunction with one another to overwhelm the opponent with small, annoying red creatures. The reason I want to talk about goblins this week is because the majority of your core pieces are legal across multiple formats, making it an absolutely phenomenal investment. So, from a customization standpoint, what do we want to look at if we're looking at goblins? Well, Pioneer is the starting point. It's the easiest place to get in. It's cheapest. Like, you don't have to get any of the old, really expensive stuff. Most of the cards for the deck were printed in Dominaria and Magic Origins. So, they're, they're relatively recently reprinted. They're very cheap. And you can get in on the ground floor, play the deck in Pioneer, and experience some amount of success, especially thanks to the fact that, you know, Goblin Rabble Masters come down in price, Legion War Bosses come down in price. It's just not nearly as expensive to think about as it has been in the past. And you get sort of the old classic. You cast your spells the old-fashioned way, and you rely on cards like Goblin Ringleader, Goblin Pile Driver, and Goblin Rabble Master to just utterly dominate your opponent. You've got two distinctive styles you can kind of come out in. Skirt Prospector into Goblin Warchief, which will then allow you to cast, you know, Goblin Pile Drivers and Chieftains and Siege Gang Commanders earlier than you have any business doing, and you just eventually begin to overwhelm your opponent with large amounts of small goblins. Or you can Skirt Prospector into Turn 2 Rabble Master and just win with one creature going the distance. Because you resolve the first Rabble Master and your opponent's like, oh, well, that's not great for me, and then you resolve... Turn three, you go War Chief, Pile Driver, attack, and they just take a bajillion damage because Rabble Master makes a token, Rabble Master makes another token, plus War Chief, plus Pile Driver, and everybody has to attack. So Rabble Master is going to get plus six or plus five, and Pile Driver is going to get plus ten. They're just going to take a ton of damage. So you get sort of the classic linear, you get some of the most absurd draws available just from playing the classic version in Pioneer. It's mono-red, you don't have to spend a ton of money on duels. Like, you can just mono-red, goblins, smash face, get there. You know, you've got all the tools you need. Moving into uh, modern, you pick up cards like Ether Vile. Goblin Matron, uh, Warren Instigator in Modern, Goblin Lackey in Legacy. 
uh, goblin recruiter in Legacy, if I'm not mistaken, to be able to stack the top of your deck so that your ringleader always hits four cards. And then in Modern and Legacy, you also pick up incentives to splash a color. Black in Modern, and to a lesser extent Legacy, you get access to Patriarch's Bidding, which is a card that I have seen played in Goblins before, and it is an absolute powerhouse, because all you need is double black. Stroke Prospector will find you the other three mana, and probably do so in a way that makes it super advantageous for you. You also pick up cards like Mog War Marshal, which are really powerful. You pick up cards like... Oh gosh, there's a lot. <laughs> the further back you go, the more you get. Gem Palm Incinerator is really good. There's just so much you get for Goblins. Brightstone Ritual to just grab an absolute ton of mana. Out of nowhere. Like, you get access to cards a deck like this should not have access to. And then, in the Black Splash, you get access to Patriarch's Bidding, so you can sack everybody to Prospect or float a bajillion mana, cast Bidding, get everybody back, get all your Enter the Battlefield triggers, everybody's got haste because you brought back a War Chief, swing. Get them. <laughs> what do you want to do about it? You also get access to sideboarded cards like Thought Seize. You can play Earwig Squad out of the sideboard where you just sort of mopily attack with a 1-1 Goblin. You know, eh, Prospector gets in. My hand's not very good. Uh, it's okay. Yeah, we'll take it. Sack Prospector, Float 2. Uh, Earwig Squad, let's take your combo pieces out of your deck and find out what you're playing. You know, find out what you sideboarded. Also, it's a 5-3 that can come back with the bidding. <laughs> it's just so good. But that's the, the sort of the fair version, if you want to do a splash. And then there's the green splash. And I, I am on record as, having played the, as, as being a big pounding-the-table advocate for the green splash in the deck in Modern especially. You've got two incentives to green now, thanks to Grumgully. Your first incentive to green is the old one, the Fecundity Loop. For those of you who don't know, Fecundity is a three-mana enchantment that says when a creature dies, its controller could draw a card. Doesn't say a non-token creature. It also doesn't say a creature you control. That's less important. The idea behind the, the Fecundity Loop is to be able to play Fecundity with some number of goblins on the battlefield and skirt prospector and prospector eats the goblins you have on the battlefield drawing you a bunch of cards and floating a bunch of mana at which point you begin playing additional goblins to the battlefield presumably ones that make more goblins mog war marshal goblin instigator siege gang commanders that will make you enough goblins to pay off their mana investment or close to it now, if you've got War Chief on the table, Siege Gang Commander pays for its mana investment in full. War Marshal, like, outperforms it. You, you spend two mana to make three mana, or you spend one mana to make three mana. You know, it's either a, a Desperate Ritual or a, or a Dark Ritual. Absurd. And as you keep doing this, you keep drawing more cards. 
And the idea is to overload, like get enough cards played in the turn that you eventually draw into a storm spell and kill your opponent. Either Grape Shot or, you know, Ignite Memories or whatever. You just, you want to cast a storm spell with enough copies that they cannot possibly live through it. And they die. It's a very elegant solution. And I'm a big fan. But then there's the new one, in which you can play Grumgully in the deck so that you've got an additional lord in your sort of regular goblin draws, where, you know, you can Prospector into Warchief, into, Pow uh, into Grumgully plus Piledriver attack with everybody. Piledriver comes down as a 2-3 and then attacks with everybody else. That's ridiculous. Uh, the fact that Rabblemaster and Legion Warboss tokens come with their own plus one plus one counter at every opportunity. Like Rabblemaster comes down as a 3-3 three, three and then makes a 2-2 two, two token. Legion Warboss comes down as a 3-3, three, three, makes a 2-2 two, two token. That's ridiculous. But then there's the other incentive to Grumgully, which is playing it alongside Murderous Redcap when you've got Skirt Prospector in your deck. Your opponent's dead. And I don't mean that hypothetically. I mean they're actually dead. Uh, because Grumgully says each other, uh, each non-human creature you control enters the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it. Uh, Murderous Redcap, when it enters the battlefield, deals damage equal to its power to any target. And then Skirt Prospector allows you to sacrifice a goblin to float a red. So you sacrifice red cap to float a red. Red cap's persist trigger happens. It died without a uh, minus one, minus one counter on it. So it dies, re-enters the battlefield with a minus one, minus one counter, but then Grumgully says, hey, you're a non-human. Have a plus one, plus one counter, and they both fall off. Sacrifice it to Prospector. Repeat the cycle. And you just do this until everybody else is dead. Depending on what kind of game you're playing, obviously. We're thinking 1v1 and it's just one other player, but I don't know what y'all are about. You can play this in your John Sack deck, too. You can play you can play Red Cap Grumgully in your, your John Sacrifice deck in Commander. I don't know what y'all are about. But the cool thing about the fact that uh, Grumgully entices a green splash is you can play both of them in the same shell. So that you have more than one way to win the game as you're going through your deck. Because you can draw to your red cap, and then your red cap loot kills your opponent. Or you can draw to your storm spell and kill your opponent that way. Either one's great. So, strengths and weaknesses. You're capable of absolutely absurd openings with a constantly underestimated grind game. There's a reason this archetype has such a dedicated cult following. Like... You've got openings that just absolutely murder people and make them question their life choices that led them to this moment. You can open Prospector, War Chief, Triple Pile Driver, kill you. That's, that's not an exaggeration. You do the math. If you attack with three Pile Drivers and a, and a War Chief, each Pile Driver gets plus six. So each pile driver is attacking for seven, and your war chief's attacking for two. 
You take 23 and you die. Game over. I mean, what else is there to say? It's it's really, really powerful when everything comes together. And then your grind game with cards like Ringleader and Siege Game Commander and uh, the the Fecundity Engine or Access to Disruption or cards like Patriarch's Bidding or, I mean, there's so much at your disposal. But as a weakness, if your opponent can break up your synergies and keep you from snowballing, you don't have a lot of cards that are good by themselves. Now, this is less of an issue in Pioneer because you can just jam a Rabble Master and let it go the distance. But even then, Rabble Master is not a big creature. <laughs> and Faithful Absence doesn't care how much mana it costs. So... From an outlook perspective, you're a linear aggro deck. If your opponent doesn't understand all your synergy points or just doesn't respect you enough to play enough removal, you're going to win a bunch of games. <clears throat> the fact that this archetype is at least playable across three paper formats and a digital one because you start looking at Historic and Legacy and you pick up Muxus, which is collected company that snorted a whole eight ball. It's just ridiculous. Oh, by the way, we get Krenko in Pioneer. Forgot to mention that. Krenko with haste. Krenko with haste. It's ridiculous. But it's a big incentive to buy into the deck for Pioneer to start with. And then say, hey, you know, we, we've played some Pioneer events. We've done pretty well. Let's pick up the stuff we need to make it in modern. Let's pick up Aether Vials. Let's pick up Fetchlands. Let's pick up uh, the, the, the other cards that are not legal in Pioneer. Okay, well, this is still doing pretty good in modern. Sometimes we can steal some games that way. We, you know, we've, we've topped because we play at a relatively small locals. And that's fine. Let's get lackeys. Let's get Moxus. Let's you know, let's play it in Legacy. So now you got a deck that you know how to play across three different formats. And I think that's really really cool. I think that's a great place to be uh, when it comes to buying into a deck, buying into an archetype. And full disclosure, I'm probably going to be working on getting into this deck because I think it's really 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 good. Not from the standpoint of it's going to be the most powerful deck in a given format but because I think it's got enough merit across all three of them. And even a little bit of merit when you start looking at Pulper. Uh, goblins have been historically a deck that people have played in the past. You don't have all the tribal payoffs like you do in the, the bigger formats, but you still just kind of barf a ton of small red dudes on the board and let them figure it out. So from that standpoint, I have it listed as Brew of the Week, Goblins, Various. And it really should just say Goblins, all of them. Like, we've even got people playing Goblins in Standard right now. Well, that's the kind of world we're living in. They didn't do that when Dominaria was legal.
Well, I say they didn't. I played against it, but that's beside the point. Ah. Uh, moving on. That's going to wrap up Brew of the Week. Let's move on to our main topic. I haven't done one of these in a while. The main topic is sponsored, made possible by contributions from Patreon. Those of you who like what we're doing on this show enough to help us keep doing it, I salute you. Thank you for sticking around as long as you have. And for those of you interested, patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg is where you can go. Become a patron, take advantage of your rewards. $1 a month gets you into the Patron Pathfinders Discord where we're talking about episode topics. Uh, I'm sharing deck lists and just kind of shooting the breeze with everybody. After the first of the year or possibly uh, the week before the big holiday, because I have that week off. I will be starting up a patron stream on the Discord to get myself comfortable playing, talking through plays to people who may or may not be watching. I mean, I do it anyway. Like, I talk through my plays out loud a lot. Something my partner has given me a lot of grief over in the past, but, you know, I digress. Neither here nor there. But we're going we're gonna to start doing that as part of the patron package if you will. Uh, at $3 a month, your deck moves to the front of the line for Brew of the Week. And at $5 a month, I'm going to write you your very own episode. We're going to do exactly what you want to do in every segment. You know, if there's something you want covered, we will cover it. So without any further ado, it's time for my first format check-in in a long time. Not just you know, talking about stuff in the context of the format that I think it needs to be played in, not just talking about, you know, abstract theory concepts. I want to talk about what the heck is going on in these formats. What are the constraints? What, what's intriguing about them? What's interesting about them? And we're going to start with standard. Standard right now can be categorized as a battle for second place. It's sad to say that, but it's true. Epiphany rules the roost, but there's intrigue in all the jockeying for the best way to beat it. Mono White has emerged as probably the best contender for the throne of, like, the best anti-Epiphany deck. Because you just play into their inconsistency. They have to draw enough removal to beat you or they don't. You play into their fail state. They either kill you or they don't. Like, it's, it's a really straightforward plan. Gruel Werewolves is very similar in that regard, although I would give Mono White the nod against Epiphany because of Paladin class and because of Elite Spellbinder. And depending on how the Epiphany deck is built because of uh, Thalia. Leer and Horror, Leer and Holebreaker Horror Control has become sort of the default non-Epiphany long game deck, which is to say you're playing the, the worst long game deck that's better against the field. You have some amount of disruption that gives you some game against the Epiphany decks, and then because you play a whole bunch of removal and ways to get your stuff back, and Holebreaker Horror is just the, the like, Epiphany is the best long game card. Hallbreaker Horrors like the if Epiphany is one, Hallbreaker Horrors one A. They're just they're both really 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 good. The longer the game goes on, 
But then there's also decks like Boros Burn, Blue-White Magecraft, Rakdos and Mardu Vampires, where the decks feel like they've got some legs, or wings, or fangs, but it just needs a little bit extra to get over the hump. You know, Boros Burn is playing pretty straightforward. You're just playing a bunch of burn spells. You've got uh, a handful of creatures, uh, notably the three drop that lets your burn spells tag for one extra, and you just kind of ride that wave, and then you have to you you end up needing to chain multiple showdown of the skulls through the mid game in order to keep it up. Uh, Blue white magecraft is arguably the fastest goldfish deck in the format. Like if everything comes together properly, nothing kills you faster. But it's also one of the easiest ones to beat if you want to. You don't need nearly as much removal against blue white magecraft as you do any of the other aggro decks because they only get to play like sixteen creatures. And then the Vampire's decks are just not dead sure what they want to be yet. There's versions of them that are very mid-rangey. There's versions of them that are really straightforward and linear and aggro. And I'm not sure which one's better. There's also the various green-black X grind decks that I think are probably not good enough if you're trying to play tournaments, but if you're tired of getting housed by creature decks and don't play much against Epiphany... They're not a bad place to be. And beyond that, I don't know that there's anything else I'd really recommend for Standard right now. It's in more or less the same place it's been for a while, although the jockeying in and around the second place spot has been really interesting to watch. I don't know what's going to change with it with Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, so I'm not going to bother to speculate. Historic and Pioneer, I have... They're, they're lumped together... And of course, I wrote this episode before the Alchemy announcement essentially flipped Historic on its ear. So take that with a grain of salt and essentially, you know, bear in mind that I'm mainly talking about Pioneer here. But when it comes to Pioneer and Historic, Phoenix is really good. Each format gives Phoenix a different card that makes it obnoxious. Pioneer gives it Treasure Cruise. Historic gives it Faithless Looting. We remember having Faithless Looting in Modern and what that did to the deck. Pioneer, I mean, Treasure Cruise is just... I mean, Ancestral Recall is really good. No notes. 10 out of 10 would, would recommend playing it. Uh, aggro exists kind of on a spectrum in these formats. Because you've got all kinds of different aggro decks, from linear decks like Goblins, Prowess, and Auras, to more typical options like the Hazaret Red, Gruul with uh, Bushwhacker, and Burning Tree Emissary, and just like a bunch of small creatures, and some burn spells, and a Tarkus Command, uh, Mono Green. You've got bigger decks like the Red Black Chain Whirler, Eldrazi, like, I mean, less... Eldrazi and Historic, because they haven't been printed into the format yet, but you get the drift. You get the gist of what I'm saying here. <laughs> Mid-range decks pick up Thoughtseize, and I will go on the record right now. I, I'm probably going to get clowned for this down the line, but if you're playing a mid-range deck in Historic or Pioneer, and you are not playing Thoughtseize, if you're playing a mid-range deck in Pioneer or Historic, and you're not playing either 
Thoughtseize or Thalia Guardian of Thraben, you're doing it wrong. Like, you are, you are making it harder on yourself than you need to be. Like, there is no good reason to not play one of those two cards if your goal is to try to play a nice, fair, and balanced game of one-for-one -one trades where you can top-deck better individual magic cards than your opponent through the mid-game. That's, that's my two cents on the matter, and that may be all it's worth by the end of the day. But, that's, that's been my experience. If you're trying to play a mid-range deck in one of those formats, and you're not playing Thoughtseize and Orthalia, you're, you're trying too hard and your deck is probably not going to do well. Beyond that, your decks tend to either be built around efficiency or value, and not a lot of in-between. There's not a lot of bleed-over between the value decks or the efficient, big, dumb creature decks with some amount of disruption in them. There's a ton of unique and competitive fringe decks in both formats, offering the furthering the notion of them being Brewer's Paradises. This is more so true in Pioneer than Historic because of the speed at which Historic gets iterated upon compared to Pioneer, which barely has challenges firing on Magic Online, and there's not a ton of in-person events to drive the format's churn. Tempo-based decks have legs or wings, and y'all know I love that. Between Delver, Curious Obsession, Flash decks, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to choose from. If you want to make the opponent get time-walked through the middle of the game. Although, admittedly, going into Pioneer, you lose a little bit of ground in that with Teferi Time Raveler. And then, let's not forget that Pioneer, the, the elephant in the room, or the four-colored monstrosity in the room, as it were, Omnath is legal in Pioneer. And a version of Omnath is about to be legal and historic, so... I don't know how I feel about it. But it's there, and it's a thing you can do, and it's probably a good thing to do. Uh, and then control decks get a wealth of options, too. With blue-white in particular, you get Supreme Verdict, Absorb, Dig Through Time, Torrential Gear Hulk, and all of the good Planeswalkers. Teferi Time Raveler, Teferi Hero of Dominaria, Elspeth Sun's Champion. I mean... I heard y'all like blue-white decks. Chad, and, uh, uh, Chad, if you're listening and you're looking for a, pop, a Pioneer deck, that, that, that's your baby. I know you want to play Blue-White Control. So, I think those formats are in a really interesting place. Uh, Historic is going to get weird, thanks to Alchemy making weird things happen. Like, some cards are getting rebalanced and a bunch of cards are going to be legal that aren't legal anywhere else, and it's... It's definitely going to give the format its own identity. But I don't know what that means about the quality of the format. I will probably be shying away from it for a while in favor of playing more regular standard and playing uh, Pioneer on Magic Online. Because one of my tenets of playing Digital Magic is I want what I do in Digital Magic to be something I can use when I play paper. 
And then Modern is the other major, the major competitive format I play. And I have Modern, I have listed as Regent Developments or things getting a bit Merktide. Uh, Dragon's Rage Channeler and Merktide Regent have revolutionized the Xerox archetype, giving you a level of power it hasn't enjoyed in a long time. For those of you who don't know, Xerox deck is a deck that just marries a bunch of cantrips to some kind of way to pay you off for playing them. And, I mean, what you want to do with it is really simple. You want to see the cards you want, don't get rid of the cards you don't, and bury your opponent in the fact that you can always find the right cards for the right situation. It's less a tempo deck and more sort of a true aggro control in the sense that you can get a small creature down, it gets way more efficient than it has any business being, and then you just keep your opponent at bay long enough for that creature to get there. This has led to sort of a fair deck renaissance in modern with very little combo in the top of the format. I looked at it and like four out of the top five decks were fair decks. It was Blue-Red Merktide, it was Tron, it was, uh, what was the deck? Death Shadow, it was, you know, Burn, it was, but there was, there and Boggles, and like, there wasn't a ton of, like, Storm Combo, or Collected Company decks, or any of the, the sort of stuff I'm used to associating with modern, like ad nauseum, like just the, the host of decks that were problematic there for a while in modern that everybody played. Urza was in like the top 15, not the top five, not the top 10, top 15. The biggest beneficiary of the fact that the format has gone in more of a fair direction is the white X hammer time deck. As you can quickly outpace unholy heat, which is now arguably the default removal spell for the format uh, because Unholy Heat with Delirium is one mana, six damage to a creature or Planeswalker. And that's really, really strong. But Hammer Time don't care because Core Duelist with a hammer is an 11-11 and it has double strike and you're dead. All this being said, Modern is still a wide-open format where mastery matters more than the trends do. And in that vein, it actually feels, and I'm going to catch a lot of crap for saying this, but having started to kind of look back into it in recent years, it feels very similar to Yu-Gi-Oh! in the sense that like, you have decks that are more proactive, decks that are more reactive, decks that get absolutely hosed by specific sideboard plans, there's not any one deck that absolutely everybody plays. And there's at least 15 or 20 decks you can win a tournament with. So, in that regard, I think Modern is fantastic. It's in as good a place as it's ever been because, you know, the fair decks have risen to the top. So, it leaves a little bit of room in the middle for all the weird, mopey, hilarious combo decks to do their thing if the opponents aren't respecting them for fear of getting valued to death by the fair decks. And I think that's just a wonderful place for Modern to be. There's, there's, It's in that classic situation where there's so many things that are viable that it's really hard to nail down how you want to try to beat them all. 
And that to me is one of my favorite type, one of my favorite characteristics of a format is you really have to know what you're doing instead of just trying to bring the right 75. In regards to other formats, I don't play CEDH, so Commander doesn't change much except for which decks I'm working on. Right now, the big one I'm working on is Glissa the Traitor. I thought about getting rid of her, not going to lie. But we finally got to play her a couple uh, couple weeks ago for Friendsgiving, and I, I underestimated my girl. And I will be uh, I'll be putting a little bit more effort into that when I think she's going to be really good. From the outside looking in, Pauper seems to be in a really rough spot right now, so it's difficult to become too invested. I'm still trying to work the numbers out on the Sultai Delver or the the uh, Sultai Angler control that I was working on. It feels like it's really close from the standpoint of like gold fishing it and like the draws feel relatively smooth. There's not a whole lot of non-games that are happening because I can't find cards. I can't afford to play any legacy or vintage deck but burn, so I'm not gonna play those formats. And I am really, really, really bad at limited historically. So it's difficult still for me to invest a lot of time and energy into it because the returns are not there yet. But that is something I will be addressing in an upcoming episode. So there you have it. That's the, the rundown on the formats from my perspective. Uh, you got questions, you got comments, you got concerns, you can send them to me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. You can join the conversation in the Facebook group and the Homeward Pathfinders. If you are a patron of the show, don't forget to take advantage of your access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord. I want that place to get popping again. It was nice there for a little while, and then everybody just kind of stopped talking. And I recognize that I'm just as guilty of that as anybody, but even when I try to get conversations started, it's usually just me and Brad. I want other people there. I love you, Brad, but I want to talk to other people too. <laughs> uh, and if you want to get to know the man behind the microphone here, uh, Homeward Path Gaming at, on TikTok, and with that, that's all I got. So I will leave with my traditional parting words. Everybody's going through stuff right now. We don't know what anybody's going through right now. Tomorrow, I myself will be celebrating my daughter's eighth birthday. We're very excited. So as of recording, it will be tomorrow. Uh, and we're, we're, Really excited. We're really trying to savor that moment because they told us we'd be lucky to get two and she's made it to eight. So we're, we're going to be celebrating. We're going to be having a good time. Uh, but remember, everybody's going through something. So always try to lead with kindness. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So laugh hard. Play your favorite formats. Be kind. We'll catch you next week, everybody. Be safe.